Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Alex Hamer. How are you doing? Hey, going well. Excellent. Uh, Michael Taylor, how are you doing, Michael? Good, thanks. How are you, John? Not bad. It's good to see you in London again. Yeah. Excellent. Hopefully you'll be seeing a lot more of me soon. I'm pretty sure we will. Yeah. Um, Lots to talk about this week. Uh, Lots of interesting action in the commodity space, not least serious minerals, which we're going to talk about in a minute. You appear to have written half a new section this week, Alex. We're also going to talk about Gemfields, which is the new spotlight. I think you did a podcast on them them, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, last week. um, It was fascinating, actually. I went into the the Gemfields and Fabergé office uh, in Victoria, Played with some gems and looked at some some shiny things. But we'll um, go through that because there's some interesting implications of this. It's it's a return to aim story, and I think that's that's the interesting story here. We're going to talk a little bit about the coronavirus. We're going to talk about gold, uh, which is obviously related to that. But let, I mean, let's start with uh, NMC, which you've also written this week, which is a very strange situation. Fit outside of your usual remit as well. A bit, yeah. I think I was um, it was a quiet day, and I I grabbed it. Um, luckily for me, because it's been a Hugely interesting story. Mid December, um, Muddy Waters did its thing. Um, put out a short report, um, fairly fairly long. Um, but it, the the focus was um, they didn't like the accounting, so cash balances, um, net debt. Um, there was talk of supply chain financing, um, which of course reduces your net debt figure if you use that. Um, and deals done between, you know, for, for example. Um, the procurement manager's um, company or a company he had shares in did a refit for a hospital. Um, he is also a non-blood relative of the founder, B.R. Shetty. Um, the company didn't declare that as a related party transaction. So little things like that they've jumped on. Um, since then, shares have dived um, and it gets weirder and weirder. Um, we're now two months into this and they don't know how many shares they have or, or where they are. Um They've refuted a lot of the claims from from Muddy Waters, but they've also brought in Louis Free, a former FBI director and friend of um, Donald Trump's lawyer um, and former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who's not the most popular person at the moment. So they, they just keep kind of barreling along and, and the share price keeps keeps dropping. And, and there's been some ball changes this week, uh, presumably as a result of all of this uh, this shenanigans. The founder, so he started the company in the seventies. Br Shetty, he he resigned um, this week. Three of them resigned, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, it's not often you see that. Yeah, so so one of the there's two other major shareholders um, who are locals in um, in Abu Dhabi. Um, I mean, Br Shetty lives there and has lived there for forty years, but but these two are heavily involved there. Um, so Saeed Al Kabasi and Khalifa Al Muhari. Muhari was on the board. He quit um, a week ago, um, and then. B.R. Shetty himself quit. Um, so the founder and uh, co-chairman uh, is no longer no longer on the board. I mean, it's it's a it's a messy situation. Um, I mean, Shetty owns or owns another company or owns a lot of another company, which is listed as well for Nabler. Have we seen a knock-on effect there? Yeah. So their their shares are down. They're also asking questions. So it's got to a point now where the the the, the boards of Finabler and NMC are asking questions of Shetty and his advisors. Effectively, how many shares do you own? Um, he declared um, a few weeks ago that 20 million shares, so I think that's um, about 10% of the company, um, were in this grey area where they were inside a company he owned, but they'd been promised with an MOU to the other two major shareholders who I just mentioned. Um, So now they're still trying to pick out who exactly owns those shares and where they are. There's a few that they actually don't know where they are. I mean, not exactly ticking the governor's boxes here. No, not so much. Um, 
I mean, I guess, you know, with all these muddy waters type situations, there is always the, uh, the, 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 the idea that muddy waters have gone too far and that this is, you know, it's going to profit from its, uh, its research and that, that, that actually, I mean, Burford being the obvious other example, but we're not convinced that, that, you know, we should dismiss these claims quite so quickly. Well, it's, it's interesting because the, the issues that have come out are not exactly the same as those that Muddy Waters have, have um, raised in their report. They've released one report. Normally they released, released three or four over, over a few days or weeks. And while the claims in there are serious, you know, like overpayment for assets, it's, it's more that this has kicked off this greater scrutiny of the company. And, and, and a lot of these things that Muddy Waters brought up have been asked um, the company's been been responding to these these questions from analysts, from journalists for for a year or two. Um, so it's not new, but just having it all together, and the greatest scrutiny has has kicked off this other issues, um, which has really kept this thing going. I mean, Muddy Waters does get a bit of a bad press from time to time, but I mean, do you, I mean, Michael, do you think that uh, we should pay attention when when they they stick their nose in? I think so. Yeah, they've been successful in the past. Um, I think we spoke about it last time you were on. Actually, we we did. Yes, um, I said. Burford Capital was potentially a short, and a week later the shares were down 80%. And I think with the case of NMC, I don't think NMC are helping themselves. So that R&S with the, the MOU, I spent about two minutes looking at that to see how to trade it, and I just couldn't get my head around it. And when, obviously, institutions are a lot smarter than me, uh, they look at these things and they might understand them. But for retail, I didn't have a clue. So I just had to trade the price. And this stock has been a trader's dream because the story just keeps getting better. There's always... Better new... or worse? Well, <laughs> it deter- better it for a trader, worse, better, worse better for, for, a trader, for a holder. Worse for a holder, exactly. Yeah, so th- there's so much volatility because the story just keeps unfolding. And there's so many things that, as you say, Alex, just keep popping up. And this greater scrutiny has just carried on and the stock is down huge amounts, and it's still moving like a penny share. We're not, yeah. we're not seeing a lot of reasons to get back in here. No, but I mean, I, I have seen a few people say that, and this is where some of the, where the takeover speculation comes in, because they own cash-generating as- assets in a still reasonably quickly growing region of the world, especially so the Gulf, um, while the growth rates might not be massive, it's an ageing population, hospitals are a good business, and NMC owns and operates these these facilities. That's not going to change immediately, and that's why there's been takeover speculation. But that was refuted by the people who were al- alleged to be taking over NMC. Yeah, so a day later, one of them said, no, we're not interested after NMC had put it in an RNS. Another company has said it may, it, it talked to them a little bit, but yeah, there's no there's no certainty there. And we're we're, st- we're saying still, still, still. Yep. Um, should we talk about another very strange takeover situation, which you've written about on the same page, in fact, which is Sirius. Now, this has been rumbling on for quite some time. Sirius Minerals, the I mean, it's potash essentially. Big projects up in Yorkshire. Couldn't raise the finance to develop it. Uh, put itself up for sale, and got a buyer. They did get a buyer. It's probably not the um, the price they wanted at five and a half p, with a lot of retail shareholders um, who are form a huge part of this this company's ownership. You know, that some of them paid, a lot of them would have paid over 20p, some of them as high as 40 plus p a few years ago, but it looks like they don't have a choice. Really? Yeah, but there was a there was an interesting twist this week, which is why we've we've revisited this story, which was uh that um, a fund management group OD Asset Management has bought into it and they published a pretty an open letter essentially um, saying reject the deal, we can get a better price. Yeah, and I think 
there's there's a few interesting things to this letter from um from Henry Steele who who runs the the mining team at, at Odie. And people might know him. He he became well known after writing a big report on on Rio Tinto's Oritogo mine, which he had he had worked with Rio or even they they'd sponsored research that he'd done. Um so he went to work for Odie. But now he says as a new shareholder of Sirius, um, they would have bought, I think, between 5p and 5.2, 5.3, so a bit under the sale price. So whatever happens, they're going to make a little bit of money. He says, firstly, that the company is doing the wrong thing by accepting um, the 5.5p offer, which is about 400 million pounds, because they valued themselves, themselves being the Woodsmith project, at about 800 million pounds a few months ago. So by taking that discount, they are doing themselves and shareholders wrong. So that's one argument. The other argument is that Anglo-American did not label their offer final, which is, I think they're reaching a bit, but the idea is that serious shareholders would vote on the transaction and then someone might come in and say, they, they call them an interloper. So another party might come in and, and offer a higher price or offer a financing. Sirius has already said that for a financing deal, which would keep control of the project within a body that serious shareholders uh, would have access to and, and have exposure to, it's just not possible. Yeah, I mean, it's going to cost an enormous amount of money to develop this project. Well, that's uh, going to cost yeah. $2.5 billion, yeah. which is a lot of money, many multiples of the current market cap. So, it, so someone like Anglo, it has to be a buyer like that who, who needs to come in, which has the pockets, the deep pockets to actually finance a project like this. So who are these interlopers? I mean, surely if this was such a bargain basement deal, interlopers would be stepping in left, right and centre. Well, that's the thing. So, so Sirius had an offer for $680 million in financing, which we get it through two years of construction at this site. But nowhere near the finish line. Not completion, no. So the idea was that it had proved the concept because they have to sink um, a shaft down a mile. They have to build um, a 20-mile-plus underground tunnel to the, the processing facility in port. Um, and these, these are huge infrastructure projects. You know, you look at how the people have struggled with, you know, rail projects in this country. You look at major mining projects around the world. There, there are issues and it gets more expensive and it's, it's difficult. And when you're a um, single-asset company that has no record of, of building projects like this, because no one has really, then it's just not going to happen. It's mm. very unlikely. So we're not seeing any, you know, likely counter bidders coming in. Uh, and I guess that undermines this whole argument. I mean, you, you say yourself, you know, if there is another party that had an interest in, in being this white knight, then, then the argument would have credibility. And, yeah. And it doesn't. Yeah. And, and what I should have just mentioned is that um, with this $680 million loan offer, it, it wasn't just a loan offer. There was an equity component there. And Sirius would have had to find an institutional investor to provide some of that cash. And they couldn't do it. Mm. So an institutional investor who could have been someone like Odie was nowhere to be found when they needed to raise far less than the $2.5, $3 billion that they need. I mean, I think it's quite interesting. You mentioned that Odie had been able to buy in below the offer price. I guess that's saying something. And I think, Michael, you, you, you mentioned earlier that you think this is, mm. this is going to get voted down. I think that it is going to get voted down, yeah, John, because if you look at the price, when the offer came out, the price was stable around 5.4, 5.6 for weeks. Now, anyone who wanted to vote yes could have just sold in the market and not taken the risk that no is voted down. So what you have is a load of yes voters taking the profits because they're not going to get better than 5.5 if they're voting yes. But you've got now a lot of disgruntled shareholders who, which goes against the efficient market theory, are willing to vote no 
just to spite Chris Fraser, who was going to get a £6.8 million payout on shares that he didn't really buy out of his own pocket. So people are actually willing to lose everything to sit, to spike the board. Are, are they willing to lose everything, or do they honestly think that this white knight will come along, that there is a better price to be found? Well, it's classic investor bias, isn't it? I mean, there's some people saying that if they put another 10 or 20k in, they'll sell out when the share price is 30. But obviously we know with dilution and the sheer amount of capital that needs to go into this thing, probably unlikely. I think 5.5 pence is a good deal. Uh, it's not great for shareholders who've been buying at 30, 25, 20, but capitalism, capitalism is what someone is, is willing to pay for. And the only buyer in town at the moment is Anglo-American. So we've got until the 3rd of March for another buyer to appear. Obviously, you said, Alex, Anglo have retained the option for the counter bid. But I think OD Asset Management are taking a big gamble here because let's say no vote, no is voted. What happens then? There's no cash. Uh, they're going to need to take a sizable equity placing. Who's going to fund it? It's just going to be worthless equity unless someone comes in and, and dilutes the hell out of it. And I guess Anglo sits on the sidelines going, we don't care, we'll just buy it for... Yeah, we'll, buy it, we'll buy it from yeah, the administration. They, they probably want to know because they can pick it up even cheaper. Yeah, I think um, Mark Kudafani was, was asked about it today in the earnings call for Anglo's um, 2019 results and he didn't sell it hugely. I mean, they, they've they've made the point a few times now that you know it's a good fit for the portfolio. They sold out of the fertiliser space a few years ago and, and this is a good exposure. You've got BHP sitting on the sidelines with a massive fertiliser project that they haven't put the green light on yet. They've spent I, billions already. And that would imply that, that BHP, which would potentially be one of the, one of the counter bidders, has its own issues in this space that it needs to focus on and, and therefore might not be interested in this. Yeah, I, I wouldn't put them forward as a, as a bidder. I, I, I don't know who. Uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a lot of talk of Chinese bidders, I remember. Uh, when There's always a Chinese off. bidder. There's always a Chinese things, bidder. Yeah. I, I suspect <laughs> they've got their hands full of uh, other problems at the moment. At the but, moment, but, yeah. But there you go. Like, there is a strange, I mean, you know, talking about sort of spite and bias, the weird thing about this is, you were on television recently, weren't you? And, uh, was it ITV Tyne Tees? The weird thing about this is so many people in the local area bought into this, which is why it became that local interest story that you, you commented on on television. Yeah. Um, well, if you think about it from a, from a local shareholder perspective, there's been work on the site for, for years now. You've got trucks rolling through the, the local towns. You've got people getting employed. And while it's quite highly skilled labour at the moment, there was an expectation that that would be expanded once you know, the mine gets started in a few years' time. So this is a real thing that people are looking at. And- while mining projects can look busy for a long time, it doesn't mean that they're they're fully funded, you know? Mm. So I think it you know, this comes back to what you were saying, Michael, where people are willing to to go to the end of the earth for this financially because they still see something concrete there. Whereas, you know, from London we just see the financing issues. Yeah, absolutely and they are pretty serious. So uh no pun intended. Uh so we're so we're saying accept the deal, basically. Yeah. Best you're gonna get. And we hate to say unless, that. Unless someone else pops up, but time's running out. But that, the time is running out, and we, yeah. and we can't work out who that might be. No. Um, should we talk about Gemfields quickly? So you've already done a podcast on this, so we don't have to dwell on it. I would encourage everyone to go and have a listen to that. But, but tell us what, uh, in a nutshell, is happening here. So once again, there's years-long history. 
AIM shareholders will be familiar with Gemfields um, in its PLC form, which left AIM a few years ago when um, major shareholder Pallinghurst Resources, which has since renamed itself as Gemfields on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange to further confuse things, took it off DLOC. They say it was um, there was a fund closing, so they had no choice but to make a takeover offer. What that meant was people who'd seen fairly strong improvement and growth in this company for a few years, so they're the numbers they use are like revenues climbed from, I think, £800,000 to £80 million within a few years. That company got taken off AIM and those shareholders were either given the choice of selling a, a stock falling in value once this um, takeover deal had started or holding shares on in Johannesburg, um, which has its own implications. Did, um, you, did you mention it was, a nil, it was a nil premium offer as well? It wasn't a huge premium. I think... People were not happy, um, but they had. It was Pallinghurst plus friends and family had a had enough to, to get it done. Yeah, I guess I guess it kind of highlights the plight of minority shareholders, and and that's very often the case in in, in companies like this, and, 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 and in um, fact, aim companies generally, in fact. But so they're they're back now. They they relisted on on Valentine's Day. They 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 have their old ticker back, which is um, Gem G E M. So their their marketing um, spiel was to buy someone a gem for Valentine's Day, which is pretty cute. What you're getting in this company is they have they have two mines. Rubies and emeralds. These two stones have avoided the the major fall in in diamond prices. I mean, they're not diamonds, but they're they're still exposed to the jewelry sector. But they they didn't have that issue of massive oversupply that diamonds did. What is also apparent is that it's a much smaller market. So Gemfields has kind of done it all. So they um, have two major mines. They've tried cutting and polishing, which they abandoned because it was it was too costly and they couldn't make it work. They have retail as well in in Fabergé, which only does kind of small volumes and at the moment you either have to go to Harrods or go into their office to buy it. Um, so that's a that's a loss-making part of the company, basically. Small uh, volumes, high prices, one would assume, but small market too. Yes. And um, the CEO made the point to me that conversions had, had gone way up since they got rid of their, I think, their Bond Street shop. But, I mean, if you make an appointment to go into an office, you're probably going to buy something. But, yeah, so that's a very small part of the business. It loses about 4 to $5 million a year, Fabergé. But, yeah, overall, it's an interesting mining company because if you're mining gems, it's actually quite difficult to to have consistent grade, consistent quality, and so it's you know we're used to we're used to looking at gold and copper and iron ore, for example. You say I'm going to get five grams a ton at this volume for this many years. That's my operation. The only things that change are the say the gold price. With say rubies, you might get high grade but low quality, so the price is lower. It's done on an auction basis. So it's it, it's it's quite different. Um, what I've said in the in the story is, for an investor looking for a value play, well, this is a bit more detail, but but for an investor looking for a value play, I can't really see it at the moment because of the exposure to the jewelry sector. And you you know you're looking at China, you're looking at the coronavirus, all that stuff. And then they've talked a little bit about payouts, but because they don't have the consistency of earnings, it's hard to forecast a dividend and it's hard to to make those plans. Um, so I've said. I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy into this one. Not a lot of meat on the the investment case there. Oh, you mentioned um, the uh, jewelry market exposure there to coronavirus. You talked about gold as well. So let's. I mean, let's come on to that. The coronavirus is the big story uh, of the moment. You, you've already written about this, Alex, uh, a few weeks back. Um, I think you and James Norrington did a sort of companion piece, and you talked specifically about um, the impact on commodities, which has been significant. Yeah. Talk, you talked specifically about this, this, this jewellery aspect of it, which I hadn't really heard much of before. And then let's move on to, to the, what it means for the gold price. So I mean, with jewellery, it's, it's, it's luxury sales. 
and you see it across, you know, today Anglo-Americans division, De Beers, reported, and, and they were, for t- 2019, they were hit by Hong Kong um, protests. So mm. their, so end demand was was lower, so their rough diamonds got a lower price. And there's also oversupply issues in that, in that area, but they raised specifically Hong Kong protests as an issue. So anything that keeps people away from shops, and remember Hong Kong, a lot of that retail trade is driven by people coming from China and spending money there. So anything that drives away luxury retail buyers is going to hit jewellery. So it's not, it's not just jewellery, but that's you know, just one part of this, this whole issue. We've already seen Burberry reporting softness. Mm. Apple this week reported softness. Yeah. And, and you know, some of that was supply, factories being mm. closed down, but, but some of it was demand as well. So this, I mean, this, is having a, this coronavirus is having a, a quite a significant ripple effect, which perhaps people hadn't taken into consideration as much as they should. I mean, Michael, we were talking earlier. You said, you know, people are positioning themselves they are. in different ways, depending they on how they view this this going. Well, I don't think any of us really know where it's going at the moment. I think nobody does. I mean, if it's as contagious as it sounds, then it sounds terrifying. But of course, we know the media like to overhype things. But it's not really what the virus does. It's how people see it. Because as you've just said, Alex, if people aren't going to shops... Are they not going to work? It just throws a spanner into the entire supply chain. So you look at companies that are exposed to, to Chinese supply, na- supply chain issues, they've been hit. There's other companies out there that probably haven't been hit as hard. But you can trade these sort of things if you're aware of them before the move happens. So now when the issue is well known, the stocks have already been hit, you've probably got people thinking, oh, I'm going to lighten up because of this coronavirus probably, well, maybe the wrong time. The time to do it is before the move and get ahead rather than the overshoot. Uh, but it is interesting. I don't think it's going to go away just yet. But certainly the, there's opportunities out there to trade things. I mean, in our news meeting, which we have every Thursday morning, Alex Jeannot uh, was saying, you know, a lot of factories are now coming out, a lot of companies are now coming out talking about the impacts on their factories. You know, we are seeing quite a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of impact across the board. So one thing we have seen this week, uh, you know, with all these concerns is that gold has been soaring, uh, hitting $1,600 an ounce for the first time in quite a while. I mean, that's a significant level. And, uh, you know, it, it is the ultimate insurance policy. Are we seeing any action in the gold mining space? Obviously, the leverage play on the gold price. There, there's been some, um, you know, there's, there's been a, a really strong year and a bit of takeovers, um, particularly in Canada. Obviously, the London Stock Exchange lost Rand Gold, which had been a popular dividend payer for many years. But most recently what what some are pointing to is the kind of end of the end of the cycle, you know, which people are trying to find um incessantly, is a company called Kirkland Lake Gold. And they are a massive success success story. They they took a mine in Australia that had been running for a long time. They found a new zone and their share price has gone from, you know, a few hundred million to into the billions. You know, they they have done fantastically well. They have just made an offer a few months ago, um, but still with the gold at that elevated level. They made an offer of another company called Detour Gold. It's a it's a cash and share deal. It's probably unnecessary. You know, it's it's a consolidation, another gold player. They're looking for expansion options. And it's kind of I mean the Canadian mining industry is it's always it's always something's always bubbling along. Um, you know, you've got the very small players out of Vancouver with with the tiny gold players. You've got the, the bigger players in Toronto. This kind of, you know, merger deal has a lot of people pointing to 
maybe that's enough. Maybe we should just settle down and, and enjoy our cash and, and give it out to, to um, shareholders. It won't happen. I mean, it, it, this this stuff will continue. You know, we, in London, we saw um, the bid for, for sentiment by a TSX player over Christmas. That didn't go anywhere because they, they wouldn't pay a big enough premium. You know, sentiment's had a rough few um, years, but someone's producing 500,000 ounces a year and gold's at 1,500. They deserve a fairly hefty premium. 1,600. Yeah, fifteen hundred. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I guess I guess that that elevated price increases the chances of the premium increasing. So, it is quite. Is it something you're looking at, Michael? I mean, gold miners must be must be on the radar for a trader. Yeah. So, uh, as you know, I do trade breakouts quite a bit. Uh, Shanta Gold held a long position there. Ariana Resources held a long position there. Petra Pavlosk has been moving up quite heavily. So I'm looking for some consolidation and an opportunity to get in there. Um, if you can find. Uh, metals which are going leaps and bounds and then you can find the geared stocks there before other people find them uh, you can make money by doing that I mean so it, I think yeah. is it is it just gold or have we seen this across the precious metal metals complex I mean it's platinum um, platinum's job. going up um, I don't know all the other metals that Sylvania platinum produces but we, we have talked about that one before and that has gone up I think 25% in the last week they put some see. stunning results out on Monday uh, and the price has just rocketed. Platinum's yeah, going up. I mean, I mean I palladium, it's hit record levels. I think yeah. You know, it overtook gold a few months ago and it's just been shooting up ever since. Um, it's amazing. Mm. What's, yeah, what's so. driving that? Is it, is it, is it related to the, to the gold price or is, is, it an, is it an industrial story? Industrials, yeah. So hybrid cars um, use a lot more palladium. I think they switched a few years ago um, when platinum was more expensive and, and palladium was lower. So in the catalytic converters. And it's, it's so expensive now that Toyota UK is telling people to fit protectors to their... Um, <laughs> oh, with something being lane. stolen? Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. It gets stolen out of hybrids. So it's, it's that extreme. Um, but Michael, I'm wondering, you know, you talked about um, Ariana, Shanta. Do you, do you buy for reserves and resources or do you look at current production or is it just that breakout? You I know what you're going to say. <laughs> so for me, it's, <laughs> it's basically about where people are going to go and try and get in before that. But if if mainly I look at the chart. That's what I knew you were yeah. going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but if if there's a fundamental story behind that, then it, it makes it more powerful signal. Sure. Um, so for, in the example of Sylvania Platinum, it is a fundamentally good stock geared towards loader metals, and you know that people are going to get on board that story. And you know, a couple of years ago, that was six seven pence. So for those who bought then and then just didn't sell a single share. Sitting pretty happy now. Um, what, what's that now? Sixty-seven, I think. So a ten bagger, the, the fabled ten bagger stocks. Ten they bagger. do exist. I think it was yeah. a bargain share, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah, Simon Thompson picked it. I thought he was going to pick it this year as well, uh, as well as MPAC. I thought he would have picked that, but they'd already been in. So I guess that's not his policy. Yeah, you had some fun with bargain shares, you tell me. I did, yeah. I do, I do love bargain <laughs> shares. Yeah, it's good fun. Um, so you, you go to the news agent at, at 5am, grab the copy, you know. Uh, so basically I look for the bargain shares, um, buy a load of them on the bell and uh, sell them. Yeah, it does work um, if you're fast. Yeah. If you're fast. <laughs> if you're fast. Actually, talking to being fast, um, before, we come back, before we come back to Tesla, which is related obviously to this, uh, this, high, this EV uh, story we were talking about, Briefly, then Haynes. This Haynes, is a really weird yeah. situation that that you you told me about just before we started recording. So sometimes you don't have to be fast. Sometimes you don't have to be fast. No, John. So the offer came out, and a minute and twenty six seconds later, I think the price hadn't responded. All the market makers were asleep, 
and you could have actually bought at 515 and the offer price was 700 so that's a nice if you're quick or if you're, not even if you're slow <laughs> if you're just awake How and long? not asleep at what? the screen One it was minute. a minute and 26 seconds i'm pretty sure i mean in market terms that is i mean that's that's, that's that is that's an eternity i mean it is a small cap sets qx stock but yeah um you can, I have done it before, where you can be quick, but I've never seen anything where it's like a minute and 26 seconds to be able to react. I mean, that that is incredible. Uh, but, I mean, it just goes to show the efficient market, you still can make money. Well, I think that theory is uh, yeah. one that's been uh, questioned numerous times. 221% we did on that tip. That's not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Not a handbag, yeah. but not bad. I'll not bad them. in uh, what's that, a couple them. of years. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, should we talk about Tesla? Now, I mean, it's a really interesting company, a really interesting story. Obviously, in early February, we had this crazy couple of couple of days where the share price went absolutely nuts. Mm. And um, I mean, whether you believe in, in this company or not, it's worth looking at. So we have in great detail <laughs> in this week's cover feature. But, but the point you wanted to talk about, Michael, was you know what actually made that share price move happen. Well, it's a short squeeze, and you know it's beautiful to watch. Explain, explain well, what a is short beautiful. Squeeze is. The right word. Well, it, it is fun to watch because the share price just rockets. It's not fun if you're one of the hedge funds that bet against it. It's not, but they should have managed the risk because if you go short something, obviously the the downside is unlimited. Um, if you have a limited risk account as a retail investor, fine. But if you're shorting something and the price is rocketing and you're getting squeezed, well, that's probably not very fun. I mean, it, it did happen to me once with v- Vasarian. Uh, I was short that on results and it dropped down very quickly. So I covered, but then it started rocketing. And I had to call my broker and, and market buy to, to close the short. So that was pretty scary, but nothing like this. I mean, this has absolutely been a screamer. It's It's gone up 200% or something in, in the past couple of months at least. So what you have is you've got people short and they need to cover, but then you've got other people knowing that people are short and deliberately buying to place more pressure on them. I mean, what I was going to ask you is what triggers the squeeze? So, you know, having having been short for so long and the share price mm-hmm. being under pressure for so long, what what is it well, that, like, that, at that moment that turns the tide? And well, it's like everything, isn't it? I think it's sentiment, and I can't remember if they had a piece of news recently that might have been the trigger point. I think, uh, I think Q4 was quite good. Yeah, or better than expected. Mm. Yeah. So obviously you've got people wanting to close, but people knowing that people need to close and so taking long positions. So you've got almost like fake liquidity. You've got buyers closing a position and you've got buyers who are opening a position. So you've got two types of buyers. And as it pushes the shares up more, the pressure to close increases, which means more people get long because they see a squeeze. And these things just massively overshoot. And then as it continues to rise, you, you have people think, this has gone up far too much. I'm going to short. They get squeezed. And it, it just continues. I mean, it is incredibly fun to watch. I didn't trade it myself. Um, not the kind of thing you expect to see in companies no, this big. No, it's not. And that, <laughs> that's why it's so exciting. Um, and does it? have you seen it before where a company does return to kind of reflect its actual performance um there was one Ocado, a few was it last year i think came out with an rns with a u.s multinational 
And the RNS itself, I don't think there was any numbers in it. But there never are. Villain when, I spoke no, about this last week. <laughs> when, when I read it, I thought, this sounds incredibly rampy. And I, I didn't do anything with the, the share price, but I saw it gone up to about 10 was it ten pounds or ten pence? I'm I'm not entirely sure. I just remember ten, um, and I thought I'm uh, going to take a shot. Pounds. It must be it's FTSE one hundred. Is it FTSE one hundred? Yeah, we'll be I think now. So. It's huge. Yeah. It doesn't make any money though. Losses widened. Yeah, there, um, there's not ten pounds of profit in that. Yeah. Business. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I did take a short position there. And I thought I can get out really quickly, and and the share price must have gone up since. So maybe the the valuation is. Uh, not reflected reality. But I mean, as, as I said earlier, the price really is, is what someone wants, wants to, pay. to pay. I mean, yeah. the fundamentals, they're, they're all very nice, but you know, if your P&L's shown a loss, you, you've lost money. It, it is a sexy company. I mean, the, 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 the title of the feature is the world's hottest shares. And it's the kind of company that people just want to own, they want to get involved with. Mm. And I, I heard that a lot of the buying over the course of that week was, was retail punters. And, and, and I actually heard it was through a platform called Robinhood, which is, uh, I think it's free, free share purchase. Well, free. It's commission free. But I think there was a case where they sold the data onto high frequency trading firms. Mm. Um, I can't remember if it was Robin Hood, but it was one of them. So really, it's not free. Well, they, they do uh, say if something's free, then you're the product. But, yeah, uh, exactly. Either that or you're being sold onto a, a CFD. Yeah, absolutely. But but I guess like I, I guess the yeah. point is the, there's then a lot of, lot of unsophisticated buying that's coming in that's not really taking any notice of the fundamentals, just looking at the price moving. But and that's not a bad story. thing. Yeah, if you're if you're buying it to trade and looking at the price, that's one thing. Yeah, if you're buying it to hold and only looking at the price. That's surely another thing altogether. I think so. Yeah. Um. These these things are always stories, and it is a fantastic story. Like electric vehicles, going to change the world. I mean, I almost want to buy the shares because of that. But when you look at what's actually going on, you've got a CEO who tweets funding secured, which is amazing that he didn't. Going to jail for that. Yeah, not a lot of in my opinion, that's market abuse. Well, he got he did get sanctioned for it. He did get he sanctioned. He did get for sanctioned it. for it quite heavily. Yeah, I mean, EVs. I guess you know from your perspective, Alex. Uh, it's there is a mining story here. It's all around the batteries and what goes into them. For sure. It's my big question about about the whole EV thing. Okay, so they produce less emissions. You still got to produce the power from somewhere, mm-hmm. um, and you, the battery still has to come from somewhere, and and that's the bit that troubles me. What I mean, do. you have you paid much attention to this? Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because it's it's kind of been a supercharged cycle where in 2016, um, people started to really look hard at what goes into a, a lithium-ion battery. And the technology even since then has changed a little bit um, because, you know, cobalt, for example, it's, it's almost a highly emotional story where you've got this image of little kids mining it um, in the DRC, which which does happen. You know, artisanal supply is a fairly small proportion of, of cobalt supply, but it does happen. More so it comes from um, big copper deposits where there's a cobalt byproduct. So Glencore produces a lot. Um, you've got China Molybdenum who produces some as well and and a few other miners in the DRC um, and, and a little bit elsewhere. There's lithium as well. So lithium prices skyrocketed in 2016, 2017. They have been in the toilet for over a year now. Was it oversupply, um, presumably? It was... Kind of, kind of. You've got to remember that these commodities are being traded and and mined for supply that is a demand that is assumed to be there within ten years, basically. So you look at you look at charts of forecast EV buying. We have one in the uh, in go. the feature this <laughs> yeah. week. Um, I think what what 
It's, I'm hoping what you're looking at is a picture of you've got a hockey stick t- scenario. It's not quite a hockey uh, stick, but it's... Uh, well, that's what people were showing in 2016. Yeah, it's not um, quite there now. So you've got, you've got mines being built fairly rapidly um, for lithium. The hard rock mines in Australia were, were built fairly quickly. Um, you had Chinese backing. You had Chinese backing and they, they got built really quickly to the point that there is now a hard rock mine that's been put on care and maintenance because the lithium price is so low. And all this has happened within, within a four-year period. So now we're looking at there's plenty of lithium. Cobalt should be fine. There was a real worry. That's when it got up to $90,000 a tonne. Nickel's in question. And then copper as well, which there's there's far more copper within an EV. You need a lot of copper for the, the charging stations. You need greater electrification movement that will come, as you say, through, you know, we might need more power plants of, of any kind. You know, you need copper for that. So those are the four big ones. There's a bit graphite as well. There's one mine, one graphite mine that has blown up world supply, and that company's doing very badly on the ASX. So there's... You know, it's just this really compact cycle. You know, you look at you look at commodities like iron ore, even gold. The cycle takes years to build, and will collapse eventually. But it doesn't happen like this. And and this has just been this this amazing kind of really supercharged one. If you figure the pun, sounds like what happens when the story overtakes the the kind of reality of a situation. Hundred percent, yeah. Um, and you know, Tesla is a really interesting company, but the reality is, you know, it's much, much smaller than the big automakers. Has some great technology, and that is the bull case. But um, yeah, it's hard the, hard to understand why you would want to be buying in right now. I mean, I they want to be. They, they'll be very happy. They saw a, the new Porsche, the the Taycan, the um, Taycan. Yeah, one of those caught fire this week. They'll be very happy. <laughs> Tesla will be not, yeah, not Porsche absolutely. if you're the owner you're probably not very happy no, no I think the owner's okay though yeah. oh that's good yeah. I, I, I still see this technology as uh, this, this whole market's very immature which I guess is the growth story that people are buying into but mm. you know hey it's uh, have you have you driven an electric car <laughs> no geez, sure don't uh, I've driven an electric go-kart ah okay I think how was that it was lots of fun yeah I've yeah. driven one of those but my, <laughs> I still drive a horrible old diesel uh, but they do say the cre- the greenest car you can you can own is the one you already own because oh, there's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of cost you know environmental cost in the production of cars but batteries whatever it might be I think you know when when you know say the UK government talks about the um, the fleet of UK cars being electric or that by 2035 or new new sales by then the fleet takes to mean well for me also means buses it means trucks it means you know we're already seeing mostly electric taxis in London. But you look at a bus, think about how big the battery is. Mm. You know, China's building millions of these. You know, the buses we see in London already, the BYD buses are electric and they're operating and they're, they're good. You know, so that's that's also a story here where, you know, for example, Didi, the, the Chinese um, ride-sharing company, they own a significant proportion, maybe 25% is the number I've heard, of the world's electric cars. So it's it's also the changing way that we use transport. So if you live in Cumbria, EV might not be for you right now, even though there are some that if you want to drive for hours and hours, you can just swap out for a petrol car. I think Nissan's doing that. Mm. But that's where there's a, there's another part of this this EV demand story. And it's not just buying one and putting it in a garage. It's taking the bus. It's riding a scooter. It's it's all that as well. Very complicated. It's a very complicated story. We, and we simplify things when we, when we kind of you know, mm-hmm. buy into simplify narratives uh, around a lot of these technologies. Um, anyway, thank you, Alex. And thank you, uh, thank you Michael. That's been a really uh, fascinating discussion.
covered a lot of ground Thank there. Thanks, let me John. let me just talk you all through what we've got in the magazine. Results are starting to pick up, and we've got some biggies this week. HSBC had a shocker uh, for a couple of big miners out there. Actually, Barclays had a shocker as well. Uh, RBS, which we previewed last week uh, or the week before. Not a shocker, but not great either. So uh, next week gets busy busy on the results front, as uh, I'm sure you're looking forward to, Alex. I'm looking forward uh, to it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but you'll be uh, at your yeah. computer or anyone be. else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all the usual uh, content in the personal finance and funds section, uh, including a really good bit on diversification, something that I think everyone needs to consider right now. They'll be doing their podcast tomorrow. Uh, what else have we got? Lots in the news section. We spoke about most of it because you wrote most of it. Uh, and all the usual comment from Simon and Chris Dillo and... And Algie Hall stock screen. Um, but the main feature, as I've uh, already mentioned, is Tesla, the world's hottest shares, looking under the bonnet of Tesla's rocketing share price. Should you should you be... Wait, what's, what's part two? This is hottest shares part one? Yeah, well, we're going to do a series of these. So we're going to look at all the big American tech companies. So we're going to look at Amazon. We're going to look at Apple, uh, Microsoft, uh, possibly Netflix. I can't remember. But yeah, basically, we're going to start looking at the really big American companies in detail because they're so important. Uh, they're so important in terms of you know the competitive environment, in terms of lots of funds that people might be holding, in terms of indexes they might be uh, buying through through ETF. So the world's hottest shares, part one, looking under the bonnet of Tesla's rocketing share price. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, pick it up in all good news agents, and we will be back again next week. Thank you. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 